do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Dear listeners, you might remember that in July last year, we interviewed Angela Karp of Rothamsted Research, one of the oldest agriculture research institutes in the world, which I was very lucky to visit last June. And I have an absolute amazing soil sample collection. Their SHAKE climate change program, aiming at making agriculture part of the solution, is back for the second cohort. The deadline is May 15. So does your ag tech business tackle climate change? Or do you know someone? The SHAKE climate change program is again looking for early stage ventures targeting the carbon footprint of agriculture or food production. Up to £140,000 sterling in startup funds and three years of mentoring are available. All details are in the links below or in shakeclimate.org. I repeat, shakeclimate.org. In this interview, we discuss how to pay farmers for the carbon they remove when going regenerative. We discuss the issues with carbon offsets and why carbon removal credits are the future, and why regenerative agriculture is by far the most interesting place to start carbon removal and storage now, but it isn't enough. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. This is an update with Shamik of Pharmazin, who we interviewed two years ago. So much has happened, but their mission is still the same, providing high quality organic produce from zero budget natural farms to people living in the larger Indian cities. Join me in this episode where we discuss the status of zero budget natural farming in India the issues and opportunities of organic and the appetite of investors for this type of farming. So welcome to this update. Welcome Shamik back on the show after two years, actually, because when we recorded our first interview, it was November, 2017. So I'm super interested to hear what has happened at Pharmazin, what has happened in the region ag space in India and what has happened in general with you. Right. Uh, so great to hear from you, uh, Quinn, and happy to be back here. Right. So, yeah, it's been quite quite a bit of time, uh, but it's also passed by very fast for us. So I think uh, in November, when we had spoken, we had just uh, like launched our second farm or something like that, if I remember correctly. Right. And then we went ahead and uh, launched several partner farms uh, just to refresh the model that we had started with uh, would let consumers do contract farming. A group of consumers could basically... Uh, have a farmer grow all of their food for them, right? And we used to divide each farm into small mini farms, and each mini farm would be allocated to a particular person. That's how it used to 
uh, operate, right? So we went ahead and launched several such uh, mini farms. Uh, we also launched in outside Bangalore as well, because one of the concerns that we always had was, is this something which is very specific to the agroclimatic zone in Bangalore, right? And Bangalore has a very moderate sort of a climate compared to a lot of parts of India, which lets us grow stuff pretty much all throughout the year, lots of variety. So we were worried, how is those going to, you know, work out in more harsher mm-hmm. climate, for example, with the model work. So uh, we really wanted to try North India because North India does have much harsher climate in certain areas in places like Delhi, for example. But uh, that would have been quite far, right? We also we wanted to do it in an area which has a different climate, but which was still nearby. So we chose Hyderabad to do that, right? So we have some farms running in Hyderabad as well now. I think we have about 25 odd farms now running across Bangalore and Hyderabad, right? Uh, uh, so we learned a bunch of different things. So I think one of the things that we learned was that this sort of a model can work in other sort of geographies as well. Because what happens is that uh, even in places which has slightly harsher weather or where the varieties that could grow are smaller in number, uh, nature has still kind of taken care that there is enough nutrition uh, in stuff that goes seasonally and locally there. Yeah, of course, somebody who's in Bangalore might have access to more variety, right? But uh, somebody in Hyderabad still has a lot of different vegetables that they could get which grow in that particular area, that particular season, and so on and so forth. So the model works across multiple geographies. That's something that we uh, learned, right? However, having said that, I think we also, so that was the good part of it. The second thing that we realized was that we kind of, we have now made it a very standardized playbook. So once we identify a partner by basically visiting his farm, seeing uh, the location, how near and accessible is it from the city, uh, it takes us very little time to actually get started, right? Having said that, I think uh, I just mentioned that being near to the city is important, and this is something that we saw uh, happen as well, that the nearer it is to the city, uh, the more interest from consumers, okay? So that's something to keep in mind. Now, <clears throat> I think the third thing that we have uh, learned is that, uh, so we made some changes to the model also, Right? So there are two or three different flavors which are available right now. So uh, one of the changes that we did to the model was we said, okay, what if, uh, so right now uh, in our original model, every consumer gets a 600 feet uh, mini farm where they do all of their stuff. What if uh, instead of that, uh, we let the farmer manage everything, right? Because we saw that a lot of consumers as part of the learning process in farming were making mistakes in terms of what they should be growing, how they should be planning, right? So although we built some stuff into the app to help with that planning, etc. Yeah, the gamification we discussed. Yeah. Yeah. So consumers would make mistakes, like uh, for example, the system would recommend, "Hey, do crop rotation. Don't put that same crop in." And we would see consumers still go ahead and put a, another crop of the same family in, right? And uh, some of those sort of things. So what uh, we said was, let's do a method where uh, let's try out in at least one farm let's try out a model where the farmer does everything uh, for you right and you basically have a common pool completely right so the so the entire farm still supplies uh, people but the way it works is that consumers kind of vote with their preferences so consumers say that i like these these, these veggies i hate these, these, these veggies right so they basically put a love list and a hate list okay 
and the farmer basically in his app he sees all of these different votes from people on an ongoing basis and he uses that information to decide his crop planning right and he actually does the entire crop planning in the entire farm this is of course more efficient from a labor perspective but what we saw was that in that model uh, although the overall yields etc were better and the farmer's effort was lower right because it's less labor intensive it's more optimized uh, but very few consumers were actually visiting the farm so which kind of like see uh, along with uh, giving consumers access to safe traceable food one of the things that we really want to achieve with this business is to get people back in touch with their roots understand farming from both its ups and downs perspective right and that was getting missed out a lot because very few people would actually go ahead and visit those farms uh, where we so we called this the shared farm model so on one extreme was mini farms another extreme was shared farms where you still have 600 square feet but uh, it is not one particular area of the land and why do you think that is why didn't they visit anymore yeah because i think uh, somehow this sense that this particular patch really belongs to me right is appeals more to people uh, than saying okay there is this whole commons which belongs to everybody <laughs> you know i mean it's a interesting human psychology at play here uh, at least in the segments uh, that we work in so that's what we saw uh, uh, because i guess it's like this right if you come and work on your patch of the land right uh, i it's, it's it's actually very interesting to think about this because this is kind of like uh, you know <laughs> i mean i can i can think of how uh, this has similarities with various different types of economic systems in the world for example right <laughs> absolutely maybe this is like capitalism versus socialism right <laughs> in terms of you know everybody owns the resource so nobody is really responsible for it or nobody feels very proud about if something does very well whereas if you have your own thing you feel like oh this is my own thing let me go and put in some more effort in it uh you know baby show of how good it is and things like that so i think some of these interesting dynamics uh, i'm not a good uh, human psychology specialist so i don't really can't really articulate on uh, that but that's what we see uh so then so we then also came up with a uh, so we came up with a third model where we said okay you know what uh let us try if there's a best of both worlds approach that we could do right where he said uh, we call that model the half and half model and uh, so far this seems to be the best from consumer reviews everything uh, perspective this seems to be the best which is that basically uh, you have half of the patch of land you control your own patch where you have six beds and the remaining pieces as a part of a large common area that the farmer manages so you get the benefit of good yield etc right and you don't really end up messing up everything in your patch of land by making wrong decisions mm-hmm. at the same time you have enough place to learn experiment make mistakes and learn from it right so that's kind of like a, so the half and half model is very interesting because it helps you basically make sure that you are getting enough vegetables enough variety at the same time you have this uh, uh whole thing about you know the actions that you are taking on the app has some real implications right so uh, based on our what we have seen so far uh, the half and half model is the best right so this is, has been one side of the story but uh, two years is quite a long time so the other thing that we also realized was that uh, while this model is quite interesting and we are seeing a bunch of subscribers sign up etc 
when we talk to a lot of our subscribers, right, uh, and we ask them, why did you sign up, right? What is your expectation? So what it turns out is that out of all of the subscribers, maybe uh, 10 to 20% of them have signed up because of this experience, because they can build a connect with a farmer and all of those things. 80% plus consumers have actually signed up because they found this a trustworthy source of food. That's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, uh, they are not really looking at, uh, let me learn a little bit more about farming uh, or let me, you know, contribute something back to the soil. That's yeah, not yeah. the reason. It's basically, I am getting food, which I can trust, which I know has been grown without chemicals. The other options that are there in the market, for whatever reason, I'm not able to trust. So that was not one reason. The second reason is because of the very low, uh, very short supply chain, our produce is usually uh, much more fresher than most of the other things that you find in the market, right? Because these are farms extremely near the city. They're harvested on the same day and it gets delivered to you like within just a few hours of harvest, right? Within five, six hours of harvest, you get it. So it's much fresher than if I were to go to, let's say, uh, you know, Amazon Fresh or whatever. There's a e-grocer here called Big mm -hmm. Basket. If you go to all of those places, Typically, the supply chain is much longer because it's an inventory-led model, right? I mean, you will harvest your produce the day before. That will come from, let's say, 100, 200 kilometers away. It will stay in your warehouses, get distributed to different hubs. So a lot of it changes a lot of hands, number one. Number two, it also have, uh, there's quite a bit of time which has elapsed before you actually get your... So the produce is not as fresh as people would like to have it, right? So what we saw with the two main reasons why 80% people have actually signed up is because A, they get access to very, very fresh food and B, the food that they have access to has full traceability and hence they can trust it. Okay. A very interesting dynamic came into the picture, which I don't know whether we talked about it last time or not, is that uh, when you talk about trust and traceability, uh, there are two aspects to it. One aspect is uh, what the, let's say we're dealing with a company, Right. And what the company says to you, which helps you build trust, right? It could be the brand, it could be the communication, it could be some of the information mm -hmm. that you share, saying it's from this farm, etc. Right? The other way to build trust is basically where uh, consumers uh, end up trusting what others are telling them, right? That's another way of building trust. Uh, and that seems to be a little more powerful than a company going ahead and trying to build trust. So let me take an example and say, so uh, when we, uh, one of the very important mechanisms that we saw work really well uh, uh, at Farmism was that uh, not all of our consumers would visit the farms as much as we want them to, right? There would be several consumers who would not visit for three, four months as well, right? But they would all always engage in the community group inside. Uh, there's a chat group inside our app. So people would be pretty engaged there, right? And a very common interaction there would be somebody who has gone to the farm this weekend, right? They would take a lot of photos, pictures from the farm and post it, right? And this turned out to be a very good trust building mechanism because uh, consumers would basically they are now trusting somebody else who has visited that. So it's almost like your organic inspection yeah, or yeah, inspection yeah. of an organic farm is being done by crowdsourced audit, you know, rather than you trying to go ahead and uh, take a, showing a certificate saying, hey, this guy came in and, and uh, he inspected and 
this seems to be a lot more powerful in people's minds that somebody or the other is all continuously going there. I have a way to find out information from them, even if I cannot visit myself, right? So it's like a continuous crowdsource audit. So that mechanism is something which has uh, played out very well in terms of, uh, uh, so people find us a very good trusted source uh, and which is why a lot of our consumers, subscribers are people who, for example, uh, some of them have uh, uh, lifestyle diseases like cancer, etc. And for them, it's extremely critical to uh, go and find uh, sources of food that they can absolutely trust, right? Because they have been medically advised to have uh, food without grown without any chemicals. So anyway, uh, so what we basically saw was that we have built a solution which uh, a lot of people are using, but... Uh, it is originally, it was actually built for 10, 15% of those people, uh, people who would come to the farm at times and things like that. Others are using it just because they do not have a suitable alternative, which gives them uh, safe, healthy food, which they can trust and trace, right? That does not exist for them. Uh, so basically what we said was, okay, so there are two choices. One choice is that uh, we could continue to expand into multiple cities in this particular more go deeper, or uh, based on whatever we would learn, we have learned, uh, can we go ahead and introduce a model, right? Which uses all of these building blocks that we have, right? But rearranged in a slightly different way, right? And that could be the offering for people who are not interested in the farming experience, but are basically interested in getting uh, good food, right? So the way we do it is very simple. Uh, so we have this, this business, uh, 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 the original uh, farmers and mini farm model that's running and we will probably launch right now we are just in two cities we are probably going to launch in a few more cities gradually as well but uh, uh, one of the areas that we are focusing on is how do you build a service for those remaining 80% of people who, who are using the service but for whom this was not really built for it right and there are more convenient and more efficient mechanisms possible so what we are doing there is as follows so we have basically, uh, and we launched this somewhere in November end. So it's been about three months since we launched this. But basically what we said was that uh, if we have to fix the food system, building community uh, and engagement is something which is absolutely necessary, right? I mean, uh, we cannot uh, fix things in a silo by being on our own, right? So community is a very important angle of it. Secondly is uh, that traceability must be there. You need to know where your food is coming from, right? Uh, that's going to be important. And third was, uh, from a trust perspective, trust, we need to enable people to build that trust. And we cannot, we should not probably go out on our own and say, hey, trust us. You know, there should be mechanisms uh, and models in place so that this trust happens on its own. So we kept these uh, three things kind of in mind. And uh, what we have launched essentially is uh, we call it uh, uh, so, so so the way I mean this model actually has has been very popular in China since I think late 2018 but in a slightly different context uh, but essentially what we do is we form groups of people in localities or in neighborhoods right so in various neighborhoods in Bangalore we have about I think uh, close to 200 such groups now right these groups are people with some of the larger groups are people with 70, 80 people who all live in either the same apartment complex or absolutely in the same block completely, right? So uh, so these groups of people, 
they basically we connect them to specific sets of farmers right which could depend on the part of bangalore that they are based in right uh, so now those farmers we still if you remember our conversation we have uh, on the technology side we have two things right the consumers have an app and the farmers have an app as well mm-hmm. right and the farmers use that app to do farm management etc so what we have done is uh, some of our existing mini farm farmers as well as we have tied up with several other farmers right and we have given them a app which basically gives them a production plan and they focus on growing four or five different vegetables okay so they do not do uh, they do not uh, do 40 or 50 vegetables like our mini farm setups do but they focus on four or five vegetables but they do it in a slightly different approach as to uh, compared to traditional farming right so in traditional farming let's say you have two acres of land maybe you're going to plant uh, spinach in it Uh, you'll do monocropping and then you'll plant all of them at one go so that your labor is minimized uh, and then after four weeks you are going to harvest let's say 20000 bunches of spinach and you will try to use you will go to a uh, in the in, uh, in india you would basically go to a uh, mandi it's called uh, those are the agricultural markets right which are basically b2b where an auction of your produce happens and then five or six intermediaries finally take that produce to the end consumer right this of course means that the farmer gets only 15% uh, or maximum 20% of what the end consumer pays number one a uh, lot of wastage because it changes so many hands and farmers never get the upside so prices keep on changing prices are very fluctuating very uh, sometimes you lose money sometimes you make money but uh, upside is typically kept by the intermediaries the farmers don't enjoy much of their upside right so anyway uh, so that is the traditional farming model right uh, what we believe is a lot more sustainable lot more uh, friendlier to the soil is of course when you are doing multi cropping right but mm-hmm. if you are doing multi cropping the way we kind of uh, ask all of these folks to do it differently is we tell them you need to harvest things every week at least a couple of two or three times every week right and you need to sow also every week right so it's not like the earlier thing the traditional farming model is so once wait for uh, x number of weeks or x number of months harvest everything at one go take it to the market right here it's no no uh, i have two acres i'm going to divide it up into five plots one plot i'm going to plant this week next week i'm going to plant another plot right and you are always growing four or five different vegetables so not only does it diversify you your risk as a small grower but uh, uh you are never really uh, of course you will be doing uh, multi cropping right and you are doing constant harvest as well right again this constant harvest is almost like a it's actually like a uh, uh, um like a systematic investment plan right so if you are not if you are let's say investing in the equity market right uh, one of the uh, best ways to do it is by doing a systematic investment plan right saying hey you know what every month 5% of my uh, or 10% of my salary i'm just going to put in this particular index fund irrespective of whether the market is going up or going down right in the long run uh, that sort of a strategy has always been nice and safe and has given good returns right uh, rather than waiting to time the market Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? 
or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle, we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, which is impossible with food as well. Yeah. It's very similar to what you mentioned with vegetables. It's the same. You, you can never... You can never time the market or outsmart the market. Maybe you do it once, but exactly. a few times in a row is very difficult. Right. Right. And I mean, we have just talked to hundreds of farmers who tell us, you know, uh, last season I grew capsicum, I made so much money. This season I uh, decided to grow cucumber and I lost it all, you know. So, and it's so surprising, but uh, I have uh, met so many farmers who have given up farming. And I would ask them, why have you given up farming? No, sir, last season I made a lot of money. That's why I gave up farming. Why would you give up farming if you made a lot of money out of it? So it's almost, so then they're like, oh, maybe if I continue, maybe I'll lose money. So it's almost like going to a casino, you know, that, uh, okay, I am $100 ahead. So let me uh, move out now while I'm in the positive, right? So, uh, So which means that interesting risk mitigation strategies can be used. And one of the ways to do it is kind of like this sort of an approach, which is what, let's say, market gardens would typically do, right, in various uh, uh, parts of the world. Unfortunately, India does not have many market gardens where, you know, this sort of an approach where mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. constantly uh, growing stuff, constantly taking. So uh, so anyway, so what we do is uh, uh, so we have given farmers these apps where we tell them there's a guaranteed optic as long as you follow our production plan, right? Uh, and you follow the instructions on the app, we'll make sure that we procure the produce from you, right? Consumers know where they are getting all of this from. And uh, there's a very efficient last mile distribution uh, system at play here. And this was required because uh, if you look at fresh produce, um, Last mile costs are usually four to, four to five times the cost of first mile. And when I say first mile, it's basically farm to city, right? And last mile is from the city to individual consumer homes. So that last mile is usually, at least in India, it's almost four times wow. uh, the first mile cost. Okay. And uh, so which is why uh, it made sense to create a distribution model where that last mile cost is really minimized, Right. And Indian cities, lots of traffic and all of this stuff. So that's where all of these local neighborhood hubs kind of uh, play a role. We call this Farmizen Tribes. So that's basically our new product, uh, Farmizen Tribes, which we think will appeal to those 80% people, right? Uh, And pretty much it should appeal to actually pretty much everybody, right? Because what we are trying to get there is to get uh, good quality, organically grown food at... uh, much cheaper prices than what you get in organic stores, right? And we really, really believe that uh, although uh, uh, organically grown stuff is currently uh, a very small part of the overall market in India, but it can really explode almost overnight if we can just get the prices of organic food down to within 20% of what regular conventional produced is priced at. Right now, it's almost at 100% higher. Right. Yeah. So if we can get it down to 20% higher. So now the question is, how are you going to get it down to 20% higher? Uh, because in the short run, your costs of production are going to be higher uh, uh, in organic farming in terms of, you know, labor. Uh, it does require a lot more labor. Till your soil becomes completely self-sufficient, uh, uh, our experience has been that the cost of production in organic farming can actually be uh, higher. Right. And Lower, you mean? 
the cost at some point. Yes. Yeah. After so once your soil has become has got really good organic carbon percentage, after that point of time, what happens is that you realize, oh, I don't need to put in much stuff. All of my composting is happening at the farm, right? And uh, I'm not spending a lot of money buying fertilizers and pesticides. So your input cost drops. And yeah. things are really good. And I'm still getting good yield. In those initial years, the yield is usually lower uh, uh, and things grow slower. But once you've got your soil organic carbon to more than, uh, let's say, 3-4%, then things become really good. And how many years does it take normally? Uh, so it would take about three to four years it would take to kind of get to that sort of a stage. It really depends a lot on how much you are willing to invest into it, right? Because uh, uh, if you are putting in, for example, in every acre, if you are putting in 40 tons of compost every year, then you can probably turn things around very quickly, even in one and a half years or uh, so. Basically, the only metric that seems to matter more than everything else is the uh, soil organic matter percentage or soil organic carbon percentage. You know, if we can just get that to be really high, because then all of the pest problems, et cetera, start really going away. Yeah, it's a great proxy. Yeah. So how do we get organic food to people at just 20% premium on inorganic food? By doing two things, right? One is by doing disintermediation, right? So that there are not those five or six intermediaries in middle. So by doing direct procurement with farmers, number one. Number two is by training farmers, giving them, uh, some of the software tools, uh, know-how required, which we have learned over the last uh, two, three years on how to basically improve their organic yields, right? So that uh, so that's the second thing. And third is by having a very efficient distribution system, especially in the last mile. So the way the last mile system works is it's actually very, very straightforward and simple. So every community or neighborhood group has a leader, okay? And uh, so every farmizan tribe has a tribe leader. Uh, there's an economic arrangement with the tribe leader as well. So everything that's sold uh, through tribes, Parmesan makes 30%, the tribe leader makes 10%, and 60% is made by the farmer. Okay. Wow. That's how the uh, model works. So the farmer ends up making almost three times what he makes when he sells in the market. Right? And uh, so it's uh, 60, 30, 10. And... Uh, uh, the tribe leaders are responsible for creating the groups, right? Uh, going ahead and telling more, recruiting new members. So our customer acquisition costs are low, right? Uh, the delivery costs are all very minimal because we don't we go ahead and deliver everything through the tribe, tribe leader's home, right? And people either come and pick up or the tribe leader. So these are a lot of them are in apartment complexes. So if it's not a very large apartment complex, you know, you get these 20 bags and you could just say, okay, uh, folks, please come between 6 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Uh, on Wednesdays and collect the bags from me, right? We have started these tribes at homes right now. We are going to experiment starting some of these tribes even at offices as well, right? Uh, and I have a feeling that offices might really work out uh, uh, well. Uh, so that's that's basically the model um, that we are currently kind of focusing on uh, because I think the mini farm model is something which is, it is really, really optimized for people who want to learn farming, who want to get completely involved, but it's not the most efficient from a production uh, uh, or pricing standpoint. No, I've completely. It makes a lot of sense and it seems a lot of learning. And I think a lot of farmers and other people working in the, let's say the distribution and the logistics and how to create these short food webs 
are running into the same issues, are running into, okay, what is efficient? How do I get it to the last mile, which is very, very expensive? Obviously, delivering at home for 80 people would be completely impossible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you see very similar discussions happening around the world on these topics. And in terms of um, the, you mentioned a number of times the organic farming world. And last time we discussed quite a bit the regenerative side, so the zero budget natural farming. How has it been growing? Has it been growing, first of all? And how, if yes, how has it been growing the, the focus on a more sustainable, more regenerative ways of farming in India the last uh, two years? Absolutely. So that has, that is actually, there's a lot of good news around that, which is that uh, zero budget natural farming has been specifically mentioned and called out by India's finance minister in the latest budget, for example, right? So there have been allocations towards that. It has been discussed in parliament, right? So there is a lot of uh, uh, focus around that. And uh, I think what people uh, uh, are also realizing in the country as well as uh, 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 politicians, policymakers, etc., is that there are some very very good learnings from our traditional ways of farming, right? Our traditional way of farming, uh, uh, let's say before <laughs> before we all invented, discovered uh, the Haber-Bosch process of uh, nitrogen fixation, right? Even before that, India was a fairly densely populated country, right? We had a lot of mouths to feed, right? And we were able to do that uh, pretty easily, right? Uh, by using traditional farming, making sure there are traditional ways of putting back nitrogen and carbon into the soil. So uh, so I think there is a lot more. Things have changed uh, quite rapidly in the last two, three years since we started because now a lot of people know about zero-budget natural farming, for example, as well as other flavors of uh, regenerative agriculture. So uh, I think the, uh, the move is pretty get, uh, good. Uh, in terms of... Um, Organic farming, so to speak, right? Uh, there is one issue that we see, which is that a lot of consumers have also developed, uh, you know, uh, some sort of a negative thing around organic farming as well, because a lot of consumers have started thinking organic is basically just about marketing, you know, and nothing is really organic and it's all just higher price and there's a lot of marketing around it. So in certain uh, segments, organic is also becoming a bad word, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there is definitely a lot of consumer education uh, which needs to happen. But uh, things are far better uh, than than just two, three years back, at least in terms of policy support, etc. Having said that, there is still uh, see, uh, the, one of the things I think which will be a issue going forward. I'm not sure how it is outside India, but at least in India, is that uh, the the entrenched conventional farming lobby is going to react to this, right? So we do see nowadays articles being written in newspapers, uh, 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 questioning, for example, hey, is this zero-budget natural farming thing? Does it really work? Is it actually scientific, right? Or is it more of, you know, uh, too empirical cannot be. And I think those are actually good questions to ask because it will force uh, some of us to produce the data that can be convincing, right? So that is uh, 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 in some sense good that there is, but I think uh, we are entering that era where uh, there will be a lot of questioning of organic as well as regenerative saying that, hey, you know, the typical arguments which are there, 
right? In terms of is this going to be enough to uh, feed so many mouths, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think a lot of that is going to come in. But it shows that you're getting to a space that that at least they feel a sort of threat. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from the, the renewable energy people and the let's say the doubt campaigns that the fossil fuel companies have created over the last decades. But it's an interesting sign that you're getting to that space means that you're becoming a threat to them. For sure, they will use every trick in the book to delay. Got it. So I I actually kind of take it as a positive sign. Yeah, I take it as a positive sign that since we have started seeing a few of those articles in newspapers, etc. now, that means that you are... uh, Earlier, the the whole thing was too small for uh, folks to react. Now it's like, okay, hang on, this is is becoming bigger. So it's uh, a threat to our traditional way of things. So I think, I think it's good. And in terms of, and that will be my final question of this short check-in, which is becoming a bit longer, but it's very interesting because there's so much has happened in the last two years. What has happened on the, we, we've discussed the, the investor side of things also last time. Have you seen more interest? Has it been easier to, to let's say, present Pharmacin to the tech investors you normally speak to in Bangalore? What has been the investor mindset uh, towards this kind of enterprises where, as we discussed last time, times are always longer. Obviously, there's nature involved. It's very different than your normal app photo sharing. Sure. So we are we are actually, uh, uh, we are just getting ready for the next round, right? So we never raised any money after that because, uh, I mean, this was a business where cash flow started coming in as well, right? Uh, but we are uh, going to raise a round now. So we have just started reaching out to investors etc. The first thing that I notice uh, in general is that overall people feel uh, like uh, like people feel that organic in general is a small market, right? So that's one hesitation that we see from uh, uh, conventional or traditional investors. I mean, uh, uh, we have not talked to a lot of investors right now, uh, but whoever we have spoken to, seem to indicate that, hey, yeah, all of that all of that is fine. Why don't you guys, you know, do fresh produce, but don't don't restrict yourself to organic, right? Do all of the conventional stuff. So I think uh, some of that is there. Still some nice reports come out which say, oh, hey, you know what? Organic has now increased so much, right? So at least that's what we see in India. Or the uh, investors that we have met is that... Um, like people have concerns around whether it's too small a market. Yeah. And, and how do you think, I mean, that's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how they respond to your numbers and to this strong, strong interest you have received from customers. Yes. So as I said, I think uh, so. India is a very price sensitive market in general, right? So I very strongly feel that there are one or two things that need to get fixed. And those two things that need to get fixed is one is uh, the price part needs to get fixed right? It needs to be more affordable and it is possible to make it more affordable for uh, uh, for consumers, right? And I seriously believe that if it can be made more profitable in one year, you can see uh, uh, the market being 10x of what it is, right? Because nobody, I mean, if you talk to, because you have talked to thousands of consumers, right? Everybody, if you talk to them, they would be in that mode. You know, uh, if it was, it's, it's almost double the price or triple the price. I wish it was just, you know, uh, 20, 30% more, then I don't mind paying, right? That's a conversation we have had so many different times. So I think if there's a way to make organic more affordable, which is what we are trying to do, 
And then, then the second big problem, of course, is the, the trust part of it, right? Which was part of our original thesis when we had started, right? How do we solve the trust issue with organic in a trust deficit, less regulation uh, or uh, regulations with a lot of holes sort of a country like India. And I think uh, this sort of an approach where you don't necessarily rely only on certifications or certificates to prove trustworthiness, but uh, kind of get people involved is going to be crucial. And that's, for example, our tribe leaders play a very important role in that, right? Because they come on farm visits with us, right? So we take them to the farms, show them the farms, make sure that, I mean, it's a, it's a criteria to be a tribe leader because this is something which enables and builds that trust, right? Uh, some of our tribe leaders are uh, nutritionists, for example, right? So these are people who automatically consumers trust as well that, oh, okay, she's a nutritionist. She probably knows uh, uh, what's good and what's not so good, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable and things like that, right? So I think uh, uh, if we can solve for trust and uh, uh, price, then I think the organic market can completely explode in India. So this is on the fresh produce side. The, the funny part, and this is my sense of it, right, is that uh, organic cosmetics to me seems to be a much larger market than... <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. I have the discussion all the time. It's, we pay much easier and much more for what we put on our skin yeah. than what we put in our mouth. Yeah, and it's it's not like so this price sensitiveness that we see when it comes to vegetables and fruits does not exist when it comes to cosmetics there, right? In fact, it's probably the other way around. Oh, this thing costs so much; it must be really, really good, you know. So, so uh, I mean, that's something that we hear from investors uh, as well. That organic cosmetics is actually they feel more comfortable investing in that versus wow uh, <laughs> something which is related to food in general that's really interesting and and just the last question on the tribes so with that price point you're getting to that 20 percent, or you're getting close what is your feeling what's your since you launched in in november where do you see yourself where are you now in more or less in terms of, of fixing the price issue or challenge yes yeah so i think uh, uh it's looking very promising because we are already lower than most organic stores retail physical stores etc we are able to do it lower than them because of those two strategies in place, right? Directly working with farmers, uh, 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 procuring and this last mile efficient, last mile distribution. The only thing we have to now crack is on the scale side of it because right now the trucks that are coming from the farms to the city are not fully occupied, right? So as soon as I can make sure that every truck is completely full, right? Then my cost will reduce substantially. So it does look like it will be very, very possible maybe in the as soon as in the next three, four months to get to a level of where we are 25, 30% more than uh, uh, organic. So I think we'll see a huge inflection point. Right now we are doubling every month. It's been three months, so the bases are small. But uh, uh, revenues, etc., uh, from tribes is doubling every month. So that's going really well. But we have to see, uh, like, Based on our projections, it looks like we should be able to get to a very, very competitive price in the next three, four months. It's not a long thing. And I think if that happens, then we'll see kind of like a real explosion in demand, so to speak. Thank you so much, Shamika. I think that sounds 
extremely exciting. I will check in sooner than two years now this time. And um, please keep me posted. I think it's uh, the model changes you've made, the lessons learned and the way you approach this is truly, truly inspiring and getting a lot of fresh and thus very healthy because we had some interviews lately on the importance of healthiness uh, and the importance of freshness, sorry, on healthiness and, and how quickly, especially fresh produce, deteriorates and loses its nutrients when it's not fresh so i think the people will find the taste much better and also the nutrient density much better thank you so much and have a have a great day you too take care bye-bye if you found the investing in regenerative agriculture and food podcast valuable there are a few simple ways you can use to support it number one rate and review the podcast on your podcast app that's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds number two Share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.